Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Kings, uh, the chance to read it and think it through together. Even though it is actually an uncomfortable story, help us to face it. Help us to actually see ourselves in this story and ultimately to see your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Most of us like to hide our mess. Like when people come round to your place, what do you do? I know I quickly grab all the different things on the couch, floor, table, shove them in a cupboard, a drawer, another room, doesn't matter. I don't care where anything goes, just so long as it looks like, oh, we just always keep the house this tidy. I think it's similar when we're talking to each other. Most of us do have a messy background, messy family, messy habits, messy life, but we know not to just let it all hang out in conversation. In fact, we quite like other people to hide their mess from us. We really don't like oversharing, do we? You hide your mess, I'll hide mine, we'll get along fine. We're starting a series on Israel's royal history in the Book of Kings. And it's interesting, when you look at other royal histories in the ancient world, it's actually really funny to see the way they hid their mess the way we do today. So Egypt, uh, uh, Babylon, Assyria, They all left detailed records of their monarchies, but with all the bad bits left out. No military defeats, no bad decisions by the king, uh, no people groaning under oppression, just kings ruling wisely and justly, somehow always victorious in battle. Now, we do know they had failures. We know Egypt did, only because... Babylon talks about them. We know Babylon did because Assyria talks about it. When they're talking about themselves, like us, they hide their mess. Which is what makes the Book of Kings so radically different. Unique among royal histories in the ancient world, it doesn't hide the mess. It shows us almost nothing but the mess. 1 and 2 Kings tells the story of Israel's kingdom, how how it's glorious under Solomon, but, but straight after him it splits into north and south. Northern Israel is exiled off to Assyria. Southern Israel, southern Judah actually continues a bit longer, but then is finally exiled off to Babylon. And that's where 2 Kings ends. And as we'll see tonight, even Israel's golden era under Solomon, it's actually portrayed here as rotten from the start. Sorry for the spoilers, but Kings is actually one long story of mess. Why? Why does it go out of its way not to hide the mess, but to uncover the mess? 
It's because the best way to address that, that final mess of destruction and exile is understanding how that mess was made. And where it's going to get really uncomfortable for us personally as we work through Kings is that King says the problem isn't just the individual kings themselves, it's in their human nature which you and I share. In the sin of each of these kings, we're actually going to see a lot of ourselves raising the question for each one of us here tonight, what do we do with the mess in our own lives? Tonight, we're going to trace uh, three movements in the story, uh, A, B, and C. Solomon's messy ascension to the throne, his messy beginning on the throne, which ultimately leads us to the messy Christ. The story starts with David still on the throne, but only just. He's so old now, he can't even get himself warm, let alone lead the entire nation. So his advisors make a suggestion. Let's get a young woman to lie right up against you in bed. Not the first thing that would have occurred to my mind. I guess that's why they're paid the big bucks. But it quickly becomes clear they're not just after a human hot water bottle. They're looking for the most beautiful girl in the land. See, they're trying to heat up David in another way to see if there's any life left in this guy to be sparked. Turns out there isn't. Now, the book's not saying that was a great plan and what a shame it didn't work out with Abishag. It's just letting us know this is how old David is now. He's too old for all that kind of stuff. As background to the mess that's about to unfold. Adonijah. David's oldest surviving son sees the opportunity in David's weakness and proclaims himself as king now. Uh, Just like uh, Absalom, who seized the kingdom from his father back in 2 Samuel 15, Adonijah is a handsome, undisciplined rebel who gets himself chariots and attendants to look just like a king. He invites everyone to his coronation feast, everyone except those likely still loyal to his father David and not his brother Solomon, his closest rival for the throne. It doesn't bode well for Nathan that he's not invited. But David's too slow and weak to be on top of this stuff himself. So Nathan hatches a scheme with Solomon's mother Bathsheba. Her life is also on the line Uh, under uh, Adonijah's rise. Nathan says to Bathsheba, ask David, didn't you swear Solomon would be king? Which is funny, because in all 
1 and 2 Samuel, the books before this, David never swore that at all. Now, maybe David made a super secret oath known only to Nathan and Bathsheba, not to anyone else in Israel or the world, maybe. Seems a bit odd though, doesn't it? And if he did, you'd think the author of Kings would tell us. Which maybe explains why Nathan tells Bathsheba, just pose it as a question. David, didn't you swear? Then, while David's racking his memory, which obviously isn't what it used to be, the plan is Nathan will burst in and confirm everything she says. Flustering, doddery David. Force a quick decision, the one they want. Now, let me ask you, is this appropriate behaviour for a revered prophet of God? Whispered conversations in the corridors of power, praying on David's age, plotting misdirection and ambush as a kingmaker? Probably not, eh? But kings is not about hiding the mess. Bathsheba goes to David in his bedroom, apparently getting out of bed isn't something he does these days. That's how old he is, as the book's so keen to remind us. Her son's life is on the line, and hers too. So she says what she needs to say, just as, John, as Nathan advised her. At that moment, Nathan bursts in, confirms it all, just as planned, flusters David, forces him, Adonijah or Solomon, you decide now. Well... David at least knows he didn't choose Adonijah. So he suddenly seems to remember this alleged oath about Solomon. Zadok the priest anoints Solomon king and finally all the people proclaim Solomon king. Well, all the people except the ones with Adonijah. They hear the commotion and find out Solomon's king, which is terrifying. They're thinking, what will Solomon do to us when he finds out we backed Adonijah for king? Adonijah himself knows if roles were reversed, he'd kill Solomon. So he actually flees to the tabernacle and holds on to the holy altar there, seeking amnesty, which Solomon respects. He promises Adonijah, be faithful and you won't be killed. So maybe Solomon really should be king, not Adonijah. Certainly Adonijah's rise was no less shifty. Probably Adonijah's ascension would have been far more bloody. So maybe Nathan and Bathsheba did the right thing after all. What do you reckon? Maybe they at least did the less wrong thing. See, should Nathan and Bathsheba have conspired to manipulate Doddery David, put the idea in his head of an oath he probably hadn't made, 
and ambush him one after another to force his hand? Probably not, right? But should they have let Adonijah make himself king, kill Solomon and everyone with him, all while David just lay on his bed trying to get warm? Well, certainly not. Making Solomon king was at least the less wrong thing to do. And this is hardly the only place in the Bible we, we see that kind of thing. God clearly says what's right, what's wrong. But sin, just normal, everyday sin like Adonijah's, it creates situations where there's now no perfectly right option left. All the remaining options are wrong somehow. You have to choose the one that's least wrong. Think about that. How messed up is this world? How broken by sin that it's just normal to have no truly good options left. That's deeply messed up, isn't it? Probably too messed up for Solomon to fix. But as he begins his reign, there is actually some hope that it might get better. Hope of a fresh start. The hope comes from David's last words to Solomon, which begin, walk in God's ways. Keep God's laws. That's what will make you successful. Maybe David remembers how he failed at that himself. I mean, you shall not commit adultery. Pretty clear, but David did that with Bathsheba. You shall not kill. Pretty clear. David killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah. And David's life and family have just been a mess ever since. Maybe David uses these last words to his boy to say, Son, don't repeat my mistakes. Don't make the mess I made. Solomon, you can make a fresh start with God. Throughout the book of Kings, the the law of Moses, especially Deuteronomy, it is exactly what the kings are always called back to. Unfortunately, very soon it's obvious all this is just a, a pious intro to the real business David wants to discuss. Without skipping a beat, he says as his final request, son, please kill all my enemies. I mean, obey God, sure, don't don't forget that. But on commands like you shall not kill, make some exceptions to satisfy my personal desire for vengeance. So first up is Joab. He was commander of David's army and all throughout his life he did David's dirty work. For example, he killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah for David. 
But he also killed two guys for his own sake, which was politically difficult for David. David never punished Joab. He kept Joab around to do his dirty work. But now Joab's no longer useful for that. David wants vengeance. Ironically, see it there, on the pretext that Joab himself took vengeance. Shimei, relative of Saul, the king before David. Shimei did curse David, but but in a public display of unity, bringing everyone together, David promised that he'd never kill Shimei. Now it seems all along that mercy was a sham. He's always harboured a grudge. Now he's saying, well, I never promised that my son wouldn't kill Shimei. Go do it for me, Solomon. Isn't there a huge contradiction here in, in David's last words? Obey God, that's all you need for success. But also, please satisfy my bloodlust. Which is Solomon going to choose? Maybe he'll feel he doesn't have to choose if somehow he can find a way to make the killings justified. That's how Solomon approaches his first killing. Adonijah wants to marry Abishag. Now, the classic way to position yourself as the next king was to marry the previous king's widow. Abishag wasn't David's wife or even his lover, but Adonijah doesn't want to be seen as pushing boundaries. So he approaches via Solomon's mum, Bathsheba. I mean, if she thinks it's inappropriate when he, when he asks her, well, she can just say so. But if she goes and makes the request for him, well, it must be all right, mustn't it? He also tells Bathsheba, see it there, he knows actually that God made Solomon king. So this doesn't actually look like a power play. Except in Solomon's eyes. And he has Adonijah killed that very day. You can see how Solomon would have justified it. Oh, I can't have obvious rivals marrying my father's women. Killing such rivals is just what any king has to do to maintain power. But remember, Abishag was famously no more than David's nurse. And Adonijah and Solomon themselves have acknowledged Solomon's kingdom is established by God. See see Solomon himself say that there. So maybe other kings need to play the political game, killing off rivals. Not Solomon. But now his once merciful reign is suddenly blood-stained. It's even worse with Joab. When he hears what's happened, he he flees to the tabernacle, takes hold of the the holy altar, just like Adonijah did. So this is meant to be the holy place, right? 
Uh, This is meant to be the place that no one would ever dare desecrate by killing another human being here. At least that's the theory. But Solomon sends his hitman, Benaiah, to kill Joab right there by the altar anyway. This killing is far harder to justify. Doesn't stop Solomon trying. Uh, Verses 31, 32, 33, 34. Have a look in your Bible. It's all Solomon saying over and over how much this killing was justified for what Joab did and how innocent he and his father are. Solomon says it so much, in fact, it's pretty obvious he's covering for the fact it's not justified at all. I mean, Joab's crimes were literally years and years ago. David never punished Joab back then, still wanted to use Joab himself. David's not innocent at all. But this is what's going on here. Joab sided with Adonijah, and Solomon would like to get back at everyone who did that. Such an ugly part of human sin is our ability to justify it as not sin. That's what we're seeing with Solomon here. We see the same again when it comes to Shimei. Easy to justify, but it's just a cover. So Solomon uh, makes Shimei promise never to leave Jerusalem. Uh, The logic is he he doesn't want Shimei going back home across the Kidron Valley to gather a rebel army of Saul loyalists. And that's fair enough. But then two of Shimei's slaves actually run away to Gath, a Philistine city. So Shimei has to get on his donkey and go get him. Now there is no way that Shimei is actually doing anything dodgy here. Gath is actually southwest from Jerusalem. Guess where where, uh, Shimei's hometown is? Northwest of Jerusalem. He's going the opposite way. And Solomon's even been told he's actually, he's come back to Jerusalem without incident. He's obviously kept the spirit of the agreement, if not the letter, But that's all it takes for Solomon to demand blood. Solomon justifies it. Technically, Shimei broke his promise, but it is obviously such a flimsy pretext for a killing that he wanted to do anyway. Of course, Solomon could justify all these killings. As the narrative uh, concludes, verse 46, uh, following the deaths of these uh, rivals and their supporters, the kingdom is indeed established in Solomon's hand. He'd say, that's what I needed to establish my kingdom. But as the narrative said earlier, verse 12, before all of the killings, 
Solomon's kingdom was already established without any of these killings. It wasn't any more established after them. Because, as Adonijah and Solomon himself has said, it was God who established Solomon as king. Solomon didn't need such flimsily justified bloodshed. This is a world where, as we saw with Nathan and Bathsheba, sometimes there is no purely right thing to do. But then our sinful hearts can twist that to justify any sin. Saying things like, well, that's just how the game is played. Or they do the same to us. Or everyone does that, it's normal. Seeing Solomon like this, it should make you think, where am I justifying sin in my life? It's all, all too easy to do. Kings is showing us here, there is a crack in human nature. And it was there in the foundation of Israel's monarchy. In Kings, we're going to see so much gets built up on this foundation. But the foundation was cracked from the start which is why it all ultimately falls in a mess at the end. The good news is, it's actually through this messy Israel. It's actually through this messy royal family. It's actually through Solomon himself that Jesus came into the world. From the start of his gospel, Matthew emphasizes Jesus is a son of David. And unlike most genealogies, Matthew goes out of his way to highlight the mess which being a son of David entails. Like how David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife a very succinct way of reminding us of the adultery and murder right in the family line of Jesus himself. Matthew really emphasizes the exile to Babylon, which Solomon's sin ultimately sets up. As if to say Jesus came carrying all this mess with him. Do you have a messy background? Jesus himself knows what it's like. Not that he's messed up by sin himself, as the angel tells his dad Joseph. Uh, Jesus is conceived by God's own spirit. He's free from sin, but he had to become one of the people carrying all their mess with him. Why? To save his people from their sins. Jesus carried humanity's mess all the way with him to the cross where he died for our sins. Jesus didn't kill for the golden crown. 
He wore a crown of thorns for you and me. Which means we don't need to hide our mess. As John's first letter tells us, the blood of Jesus, it cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Think you're too messy for Jesus? You can't be. Jesus comes from a messy family of historic proportions. He's seen it, he knows it, and he died for it all. Think you're too good to need Jesus. John says, you deceive yourself. You're a messy sinner like me, like Solomon, like everyone even if you're really good at hiding it. Nathan and Bathsheba, closest thing to the good guys in the first chapter we read, if even they were dodgy, can't you admit you are too? David and Solomon, Israel's most glorious kings in all their history, if they were actually wicked, Can't you admit you are too? Just confess and you will be cleansed. If you've never confessed your sin to God, you can in prayer right now. It just means no more hiding from God. No more hiding the mess. No more pretending you're better than you are which you'll find is actually a relief. If you have confessed your sin to God, how about to other Christians? You don't need to, to be forgiven. But there is an even stronger experience and appreciation of forgiveness Uh, when uh, you can share with a brother or sister in Christ all your sinful mess, and they can remind you right there in person, Jesus took all that to the cross for you. To do that, you need to build relationships uh, with people before you can uh, share your mess with them. Community group, uh, reading the Bible one-to-one, but it is worth sharing your mess with with someone else. And not because you're proud of it, because you want to bring it to Jesus together. King's traces, like from its final mess, destruction and exile, it traces it all the way back to the mess of the human heart. As we work through King's Together, it is going to expose some of our own mess. So it's good to know where to take it. Let's take our mess to Jesus together. I'm going to pray that we would. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to confess we are messed up sinners. We need to confess we're not just messed up sinners, but 
we try to hide the fact that we are, denying it, justifying it. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took all our sinful mess with him to the cross and died for it there. Help us to be open with you, not hiding. Help us to know the joy and relief of confession and forgiveness. Help us to share that with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.